You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we go with episode 94. And I hope you all remain safe and healthy out there. I want to say it's good to be back in front of the microphone and talking with you all because I just got back from my second Peru trip a few days ago, and uh, I'm still way behind on everything as per usual. And I've got one more Peru trip this year. At the end of May, my friend and co-author Josh Holbrook is bringing his tropical ecology class down for 10 days, and uh, I'm going to come along and help out with that. Josh brings some students down every other year, and our rainforest field stations are the perfect laboratory for those bright young minds. Just a little show business before we get to the episode. I want to take a moment to highlight a couple of folks who are supporting the show. Uh, First up, Clint Guadiana. Thank you so much for your Patreon contribution. Uh, You all may remember Clint from just a few episodes ago, The Flipping Tin Show. Had a lot of fun with that one. And thanks again, Clint. I also want to thank Dave Weber for yet another one-time donation. I mean, who would have thought that was possible? So thanks, Dave, for your continued support and for turning the one-time donation concept inside out. So the floodgates are open. And of course, I always want to thank all of the people who keep the show rolling on into the future. You know, I could not continue with this project alone. You know, I mean, retired guy, fixed income, all that. So supporting the podcast is fairly easy to do, and there are several ways to do so. Uh, You can use Patreon like Clint, or you can make a one-time donation like Dave. Uh, But I will tell you more about how to do that at the end of the show, because we have an episode waiting, uh, and rather impatiently, in the green room. Well, here we go with the eighth installment of Herp Science Sunday with Dr. Alex Crone. I've really enjoyed doing these shows with Alex, and uh, this time we've got a real doozy for y'all. So please put your hands together for Dr. Harry Green. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. And once again, we have another edition of Herp Science Sunday with Dr. Alex Crone. Welcome back to the show, Alex. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. How are you, Mike? Uh, I'm doing well, and I'm very excited, and I'm very excited for you to introduce our guests on this week's uh, edition of Herp Science Sunday. Absolutely. I'm excited, too. Uh, We have a very special guest today. It is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Harry Green, someone who I consider to be a superstar in the herpetological community, an incredible scholar, a mentor, and a friend. I've known Harry since 2008, when at the behest of Kate Jackson, he took me on as a summer intern to feed his venomous snakes and do research on Asian pit vipers. Harry has published over 100 scientific papers, two books, and two books over the past 60 years, amassing more than 11,000 citations. His first book was published in 1997 and is called Snakes, the Evolution of Mystery in Nature, and is a wonderful treatise on on snakes with beautiful pictures and clear writing for a general audience, and enough depth and breadth to teach even professional herpetologists something new. His second book, Tracks and Shadows, Field Biology of 
as art is more autobiogeographical, tracing Harry's origins, fascinations, and fears as they influence his scholarly work, his outlook on life, death, and nature. His breadth of work spans behavioral ecology, feeding ecology, parental care, snake-primate interactions, natural history education, and the possibilities of Pleistocene rewilding. Harry was a professor at the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology at UC at the University of California, Berkeley for two decades, a professor at Cornell University for two more decades, and is now an adjunct faculty at UT Austin, where he divides his time between Austin and a ranch in the Hill Country. Harry, it is a great pleasure to have you here. I'm excited to talk with you again, and it's just, it's good to see you. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to see both of you. I'm glad to be here tonight. That was quite an inter- introduction, Alex. Well done. I, <laughs> I, I have to say that you, you talked about Harry's two books, and uh, Harry, I, I like your, the titles of your books, but I also like the subtitles. I think maybe even more. Uh, well, thanks. Uh, you know, I don't know if people catch that or not, but I think the uh, field biology is art. I think that's uh, that was something that really uh, stuck out and, and spoke to me. And uh, of course, you kind of cover that uh, later on in the book. And folks, if you uh, if you haven't uh, read these books, do yourself a favor and go out and get them. Uh, I think the uh, uh, snakes, uh, the evolution of mystery in nature is uh, that was out in 1997. So it's been a while on that one. And uh, Tracks and Shadows has been out for about 10 years now. That's right. That's right. And I'm working on another one. Ah. So we'll see. Okay. I hope to get this one more book out. All right. Uh, yeah. And uh, we don't need a title or anything, but do you think uh, it's going to be a year out or two years out or who knows? Uh, right now, I'm 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 going to devote the next year to working hard on it. So I hope to send it to the publisher uh, into the summer 2025, just before I turn 80. Wow. That's my plan. Okay. Very exciting. Good to have goals. I want to. I want to just uh, fanboy just for a moment about the first book. This, I mean, Traction Shadows is is super book, but the first book on. Uh, I'm gonna get specific here, but on page two hundred three, you have a picture of two snakes. Hey. Uh, you have a picture of a uh, an oxyropus, a calico snake, and then underneath that, you have a picture of a a, a, a vine snake. Uh, Trepanergos is the genus. Now it's uh, I think it's Cephalophus is now the genus kind of a purplish looking thing with bands on it. And when I bought that book and I got to that page, it was as <laughs> if a light bulb went off in my head and, and I'm, I'm not making this up. I saw those two snakes and I just decided right there, I had to figure out how to go see them. I had to, oh, I had to figure out how I was going to do that. How I, wow. you know, I wanted to I expand my horizons, travel internationally and see animals like that and it took a little while yeah (laughs) but i've done it i've seen in fact i see both of those snakes uh nearly every year on my trips to peru uh so so a little feedback from me stunningly beautiful snakes yeah yeah so uh thanks for that and uh 203 look it up folks uh they're they're pretty cool snakes but uh, (laughs) i appreciate that and i think that's uh you know, given what uh, we know about you, that's sort of an encapsulation of your work and your not just your research, but your your writing and uh, your thoughts on uh, snakes and ecology and things like that in general. You just never know how you're going to inspire people with some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Glad to know it. Alex. Yeah. So um, there are a couple there. There are many themes that that we can go ahead and and talk about here um 
we we've touched briefly on the books that that you've already uh written mike did you want to talk about um place the scenery wilding or um do you want to dive into the the papers that we've read um as part of this meeting well i i i'm sure uh i'm sure our listeners want to hear a little bit about the your work with your your work and your thoughts on Pleistocene rewilding or just rewilding in general. Um, and uh, one of the things that uh, struck me about a, a, a talk you gave at the Kansas Herpetological Society meeting last year, which I attended, and uh, you had some slides up about that. And one of the things that, that kind of hit home for me about that was it wasn't just uh, the fact that Place this this idea of bringing creatures back to North America that existed there previous in previous time. It, it wasn't just an idea of something that could be done, uh, because in some ways it was already underway. Some of those some elements of that are already happening. Can you talk about that a little bit? They are now. So um, let me take you back to twenty years ago uh, in the fall of two thousand and four. I had a PhD student named Josh Donlon. We were both doing research in the Chiricahua Mountains of Arizona. Josh was working on small mammal communities. I was working on rattlesnakes. We both knew a professor at the University of Arizona named Paul Martin. And Paul was a, a, an astonishingly broad, creative thinker. Uh, he was the architect of the idea that humans had rapidly driven to extinction the megafauna of North America about 10 to 12,000 years ago. Uh, that's, that's sort of a side topic. I think, I think it didn't happen quite like Paul imagined, but I think he set in place a, an incredibly uh, thought-provoking debate, and I think that parts of what he argued for are indeed true. At one point, Paul had actually written in an obscure publication, hey, why don't we think about restoring some of this lost Pleistocene ecosystem function and biological diversity that we lost in North America about 10,000 years ago. So you need to remember that only about 10 to 12,000 years ago, we had six species of elephant relatives here in the U.S. We had camels. Uh, we had bigger bears than we have now. We had, we had a vastly larger megafauna. And so what Paul said was, you know, everything that's here now evolved in that context. Maybe we should look into the possibility of restoring some of that. And as far as I can tell, that paper had zero impact. I'm, I'm not sure it's ever been cited even. Wow. So Josh and I were bouncing around southeastern Arizona one day in one of our pickups, and we just started talking about this. And we went, you know, this maybe this isn't as crazy as people think, you know. Maybe it's worth talking about. And so we got this idea that we would assemble a small group of people who would have sort of a think tank approach and sort of go through this idea that you might take the same species are close related proxies and bring them back to North America. So long story short, we, we had a connection to the Turner ranches in New Mexico. We brought together about a dozen people of various expertises. We uh, secluded ourselves in a bunkhouse on the ladder ranch in New Mexico for Friday through Sunday. And we, we hashed out a manifesto, which we published in nature. And within a month we had gotten, uh, about a thousand emails. We'd done fifty TV and radio interviews. We got a death threat. <laughs> we we had a level of attention that none of us had ever imagined. Uh, we sparked a, a huge discussion, and aside from all that, 
in some ways, as a herpetologist, the coolest thing was that bunkhouse meeting resulted in the Bolson tortoise this last September being ceremonially released out onto the New Mexico landscape. So this this largest of burrowing tortoises, four species, six species, depending on how you split them, burrowing tortoises in North America, is now back in its Pleistocene distribution more than 10,000 years after it last occurred in New Mexico. So speaking personally, despite all the flack we caught, I'd do it all over again just for having watched the Director of Fish and Wildlife Service let these balsam tortoises loose into the New Mexico fauna again. So, so that's sort of the short story. Um, one thing that's really interesting is that when we did that workshop in 2004, Josh and I argued that perhaps the most appropriate restoration benchmark for North America was the end of the Pleistocene. And I don't think that's true anymore. I, I think that the world is changing so fast that we shouldn't restore to any previous benchmark, be it 1492, uh, 1,000 years ago, or 10,000 years ago. I think what we're faced with is the sort of, I would say 20 years ago, incomprehensible dilemma of trying to maximize the preservation of biodiversity in the face of climate change and political instability and things like that. So uh, interestingly, the Fish and Wildlife Service now feels the same way. And so the Fish and Wildlife Service is now very involved in the restoration of the Bolson tortoise to the U.S. fauna. And they're doing that in the context of overall conservation of a species. So the Bolson tortoise is on the endangered species list. It's, you know, it's so-called natural range is a very small area in north-central Mexico on the borders of the states of Durango, Chihuahua, and Coahuila. And the fate of that animal in its natural range is, is, is certainly threatened, I mean, at best. So th uh, this is not a knock on Mexican conservation activities at all. It's, at all. it's, it's a, a realization that uh, besides the, the things that the, besides the threats that Bolson tortoise faces right now, there's climate change and whether or not the place that inhabits right now will in fact be suitable for it 100 to 200 years from now. And the idea of the Fish and Wildlife Service is we should be establishing these climate assurance populations outside the quote-unquote natural range. And that's that's what is in fact happening right now. They The Turner Foundation moved about two dozen bolson tortoises that were legally in the U.S. from Arizona to New Mexico in, I think, 2006, maybe it was 2005. And there are now about 800 Bolson tortoises in New Mexico. That's awesome. Yeah, none of them have, none of the ones that were born there, hatched there, have yet reached sexual maturity, but a lot of them are approaching that size. Oh, wow. Now discussions are underway about what to do with these head-started sub-adult tortoises that will answer future questions. And one thing that was so inspiring and thought-provoking about this celebration in September of last year with the Fish and Wildlife Service and the, the Turner Foundation people was they view this as something that we won't see come to fruition in our lifetimes. So this is, this is conservation for the long-term future. This is people doing things very carefully 
trying to look for multiple options so that in the long term, this thing called the Bolson tortoise will persist. I think it's just astonishing. That's fabulous. So, it really is. I'm not embarrassed at all to have written those papers on Pleistocene and Wilding. <laughs> well, look what happened. That's that's fabulous. I'll share a, an anecdote about the Balsan tortoise as well, Harry. I remember hearing about um, reading your Pleistocene rewilding paper and learning there for the first time about uh, Balsan tortoises and and saw your talks on, on Pleistocene rewilding and had that same sense of awe. And um, later in grad school, I... Co- completely coincidentally ended up studying uh, lizards on the lava flow of the Pedro Armendariz ranch where the Bolson tortoises are being released. And so right. got, yeah. got, got to see Bolson tortoises in their burrows and, and was again, awed for a second time. And now to come full circle in my current position, I'm helping Chris and the other folks at uh, the, the Turner foundation, uh, uh, use genetics to better understand the relatedness of all the tortoises that are uh, currently breeding at uh, the Turner Foundation. And so it feels really special to to have a connection to this story that, as you say, has so many different levels of importance, whether you view it as rewilding or increased redundancy for a really cool tortoise. It is is special on just so many levels it's yep. it's cool to be a part of yeah and it's i i think you know the bolson tortoise we we couldn't have imagined this in 2004 but the bolson tortoise is going to end up being an exemplar of how to think about conserving species for the future so the you know we're going to learn things not only from studying bolson tortoises for their own sake, but also for thinking about the problems involved with all this. We're going we're gonna to learn things that are going to help saw, uh, save things like cheetah, you know, or pick your favorite endangered species. You know, climate change is a real thing. Distributions are going to shrink and blink in and blink out, you know, and we're going to have to all come to grips with this. It's not going to be easy. And, yeah. and we're not always going to know what to do. I mean, I think that's a really important point. We're going to have to take risks. We're going to fail sometimes. And I think we need to just grapple with that. Well, I think, you know, that the, there's the risk taking, but then there's there's a greater risk in doing nothing. Absolutely. So, yeah, action is required at, at some point. Yes. So. I feel very strongly about that. There's it's it's tempting to go risk free because when you when you do things that are controversial and risky, you get a lot of flack. And uh yeah. sort of not doing anything controversial or risky is in a way the easy way out. And it's not too hard. It's not too far beyond that to call it a little bit cowardly, you know? And sometimes a great idea will find its people. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's even more surprising or maybe more heartening to see this example coming from the U S government itself, that bringing back a species that had in recent times not been found in the United States and now endorsing uh, a release program for it in the name of these, these greater conservation issues like that. Yeah. That's pretty heartening. That going all the way back to 2000, I guess it would be 2005. um, The Turner foundation and other people involved in this and now the U S fish and wildlife service have been very, very careful to, to embrace and collaborate with Mexican conservation biologists. So this is very much an international effort. Um, and, 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 and that's of course a good thing. 
They're really good. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, now I'm terribly interested in going out there and talking to some people and getting, getting the bigger story for the show <laughs> at some point. So, um, yeah. I just find it's fascinating and I wonder, you know, uh, like you say in our lifetimes, uh, it, it is, it is the, the project is here in our lifetimes that we don't know where it'll be 50 years from now. Yes. Um, I hope one of the places it'll be is that there will be bulls on tortoises in other places, including other states. Um, when I was at that Kansas Herb Society meeting with you, I met somebody that's involved with private ranchers that are interested in conservation biology on the southern southwestern edge of Kansas. And there were giant tortoises in Kansas only not that many thousands of years ago, you know. So wow. sort of what we have to grapple with is sort of, you know, what's our notion of what we want for the future and how much does the past have to tell us about that? The truth is that tortoises were once globally predominant. They really were. I mean, and even in North America and in the Southern Great Plains, only a few thousand years ago, a few 10,000 years ago, there was a rich tortoise fauna. Yeah. Some of them were huge. I mean, I've got a picture of me met next to a, a fossil gopherus. That's the burrowing tortoises, gopherus. I got a picture of me next to one that's like the carabus must be two and a half feet long. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. wow. Like thirty or forty thousand years ago, just just think about that. So, so we don't know what the future is going to bring, but I think this, the context of knowing that we used to have a much richer tortoise fauna, that was much more widespread, tells us that we can we can try to think more broadly about this, more more uh, innovatively. I guess the real long game, too, thinking about this is, if if the bolson was gone, completely gone, there's no rootstock from which evolution can take. Uh, and and make modify tortoises and and uh you know split off different species and things as, as you know we're talking you know a hundred thousand years from now or longer uh, but now if we if we maintain the tortoise uh it allows other things to happen beyond any of our lifetimes and are beyond our our ability to comprehend in terms of you you're know, exactly time. right Mike. you're exactly right so that's a now special you're really thing to do. thinking forward thinking yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Wow. Pretty exciting, huh? Yeah. And who can have a tortoise? I mean, I when I was there in September, which was, I, I was there for my 78th birthday. I couldn't believe it. And I was holding the same tortoise, Gertie, that I had held in 2007, visiting huh. the Armadero. And she's now estimated to be at least 70 years old. She's still pumping out eggs every year. I mean, it's it's kind of hopeful beyond words. Yeah, absolutely. Not to not to mention the fact that tortoise biology is cool. You've got a seventy-year-old creature making eggs still. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We uh, we recently published a study on the genomics of um, gopher tortoises in Alabama, and we we sequenced their DNA and tried to understand how populations were related to each other just across the scale of. Um, Southern Alabama and the panhandle of Florida. And we're realizing that even when looking at thousands of SNPs across the genome, the tortoises were all pretty related to each other as if they had been effectively one giant population or meta population uh, historically. And it was kind of the more I thought about it, the more it actually made sense, given that the generation times for gopher tortoises may be 30, 50, or even up to 70 years. And so it to to think about that, like 
the animals that we were capturing were probably have probably been alive for much longer than I have. And the stories that their genomes are telling are likely even older than that, given the rate of kind of molecular evolution. And it it was as if the kind of uh, contiguous long leaf pine savannas of the Southeast were written into the genomes of these tortoises. And it was, it, it yeah, thinking on a tortoise scale is really uh, a way to broaden your horizons, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, then you throw in that the Bolson tortoise is the closest living relative of the gopher tortoise. Right. Oh. And the tortoise is the closest living relative of those one, two, or three species of desert tortoises out west. So you've got these sort of two basal lineages of tortoises, each of which includes two or more species, and each of which is sort of crosses each other in the middle of the continent, right? Mm. And uh, Alex, we haven't had time to visit about this, but we're just starting an attempt to get ancient DNA out of our fossil gopherus here in the Burt Paleo Collection at UT Austin. Cool. And if we can do that, we're going to be able to address some really interesting questions about the relationships among extinct fossil gopherus burrowing tortoises and the living ones. And we might, it's even conceivable, this will shake up the taxonomy of some of these things because the modern species have, have not really been I would say not impressively diagnosed relative to the fossil taxa. So, so stay tuned. It could get really cool here before too cool. long. Cool. Interesting. Cool. Interesting. You've, you know, the, uh, the possibility of taking animals that only exist as a sort of shadow That's and right. bringing them in, into, into taxonomic play, as it were. That's into genomic taxonomic yeah, play. Yeah. That's we know for sure yet that we'll succeed, but we're, we are undertaking that right now. Wow. Very exciting. We'll yeah. see. Yeah. We'll see. Cool. I'd like cool. to hear how, like to hear how that turns out. That sounds cool. Snake biologist, you know, <laughs> here all wrapped up in tortoise. Yeah, stuff. but you know, I mean, uh, like I always say, you know, I don't trust people who don't like tortoises and turtles, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, before we uh we have a couple uh we want to talk about your uh, this paper uh, but I also want to mention something else that uh, came up during the KHS meeting, and uh, and it's sort of related to the rewilding thing in a way. And it was just a, a slide you had about relationships. Um, there's some some papers on this, but it was about the relationship between snakes and primates, and maybe snakes and hominins, and uh, yep. maybe the possible origins of uh, spitting cobras in relation to yeah. hominin evolution. And I thought that was yeah. absolutely fascinating when that slide came up because. Uh, most of what people get in terms of their our hominin ancestry is these creatures with sticks or spears, and they're bringing down a mammoth or a, a pig or something. And that's that's sort of what people think is the norm or how how everything operated. But I think the reality of it is is anything you could kill with a stick or a rock uh, was food. Including a cobra, yep. so it, it kind of really broadened how I think about you, you know the early ancestors and how they operated. It wasn't just all you know bringing down the big game; they were eating anything they could, including cobras. Well, not only that, I I think there's a good case can be made that um, hominids and even much more broadly, just anthropoid primates, preemptively kill snakes because they're a threat. And so um, I'll just give you one example there. These 
animals called bearded capuchins in the Cerrados, the dry savannas of Brazil. And basically, bearded capuchins diagnose two kinds of snakes. And one kind of snake is vipers, coral snakes, they're mimics, and boas. And the other kind of snake is everything else. Ah. And when bearded capuchins encounter the first kind of snake, they go into adversarial mode. They start throwing stuff. They they pick up sticks and sharpen one end and plunge them into crevices and poke and stab at snakes. They throw they throw rocks at them. And the same thing is true of chimps. So, uh, I mean, there's an anecdote from the literature of a white-faced capuchin in Costa Rica killing a huge Bothrops aspera, Tercio palo, with a club, with a stick. Oh, my gosh. So, wow. I think the evidence is that not and what I didn't say is the other species of snake for the capuchins are things like vine snakes, oxybelis, and so forth. And they basically either ignore those or pick them up and eat them. Ah. So snakes are either something to eat, something to ignore, or something to kill because it might kill you down the road, right? And so the point there is that primates, since way before the origin of humans, since way before the, the split between chimps and human lineages, were probably preemptively with weapons, either hurled projectiles or clubs and spears, killing snakes, right? Okay. So you take that context and then you look at snakes. We got about 4,000 species. We got convergent evolution as the absolute norm among snakes. We got a simplified body form, only so many ways to solve any particular solution. And as you guys both know, we could go to, let's take an example, we could go to rainforests in South America, in Southeast Asia, or in Africa, and in every one of those places, we would see vine snakes, what we would call vine snake morph snakes. They wouldn't be each other's relatives, so they wouldn't represent a lineage of vine snakes that diversified on three continents. They would, res they would be independently evolved vine snake ecomorphs on each continent. And among the things we notice is they tend to defend themselves the same way every place. You can you can look at Ahatula in Asia and Thelatornis in Africa and Leptophis in South America, and you're going to see these dramatic open mouth threat displays, right? Yeah. So that's the norm in snakes is to get independently evolved defensive displays that correlate with habitat. And yet, long distance defense has only evolved three times in snakes. So what I'm talking about mm -hmm. is a defensive uh, syndrome in which you can punish an adversary from more than, say, half or a little more than your own body length. So when you think about what a puff adder or a terciopelo or a coral snake can do, those potentially deadly bites can only happen within less than a body length of the snake itself, right? And yet three times, twice in Africa and once in Asia, Spitting evolved. It's an incredibly sophisticated syndrome of adaptations. And what we showed in that science paper was that, um, and this was a team of people, but basically, basically from all the way from the genome out to the proteome, out to the transcriptome, out to the effects on tissue, these three different lineages of spitting cobras have in parallel evolved the same set of adaptations. They all have the modification of the fangs such that the orifice, instead of being uh, 
beveled and elongate down to the tip, as in things that inject venom. Right. In spitting calibers, it's a beveled hole that's several meters up on the front of the fang. And it turns out that spitting cobras even track the head movements of their adversary, such that like a bird hunter with a shotgun, when that spitting cobra finally, you know, essentially tells its musculature, squeeze those venom glands and spit that venom, it's aiming those droplets for where it predicts the adversary's eyes are going to be. I mean, this is incredible, Damn. right? The sophistication yeah. of this adaptate of this adaptive suite is amazing, and it evolved three different times. That's that's stunning, and it sort of cries yeah. for a special explanation. And we went looking for something special. It turned out it had been suggested way back in the early 20th century. Well, maybe uh, spitting was an adaptation to trampling ungulates. For some reason, trampling ungulates are a really popular. Popular hypothesis with herpetologists. That was supposed to be the deal with rattlesnakes too, and it doesn't it doesn't work out there either. So it doesn't the timing doesn't fit at all. And in fact, the only thing we could find that correlates across all three origins of spitting cobras is events in human evolution. Ah. So it turns out the two African origins both happened about six to eight million years ago, which is coincident with the chimpanzee human lineage split. So we're talking about the origin of a bipedal savanna living, even better at using weaponry hominid. That's our lineage. Okay. And then the third one in Asia corresponds with the arrival of Homo erectus about two million years ago. Wow. The arrival of of that bipedal weapon using lineage. So yes, it's circumstantial. Uh, yes, this hypothesis could be strengthened or refuted by changing in the estimated dates for the origin of the spitters and the arrival of humans, blah, blah, blah. So that's the way science works. You know, it, sure. it could work out. I doubt it will be. The, I doubt this will happen, but it could turn out that refinements of dating and the timing of these origins and so forth could refute this hypothesis. But right now it's the best thing out there. And I think it's incredibly tantalizing. So, you know, snakes snakes were affecting primate evolution going back to the origin of primates. And it turns out we've been affecting snake evolution, yeah. <laughs> too. How cool is that? Pretty incredible. Yeah, it's kind of mind-blowing. Uh, and the, the idea that, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, you're going to have to be more accurate from further away. Yep. You can't just come up and, and whack me with a stick because I'm going to spit in your eye. So you're going to have That's to. That's right. And anytime you gain distance... You lose ac you lose accuracy, so that's it. Just gives the snake a better chance. Uh, yeah, it all all makes sense to me uh, from that you know in that context. But yeah. it's maybe a little fanciful, but it's also wonderful to think about our primate ancestors going way back to the common ancestors of capuchins and humans being kind of herpetologists even back then able to identify dangerous snakes from non-dangerous ones and okay they throw the mimics in there too for just for safety's sake um but but distinguishing yeah boids from uh from from other uh harmless lookalikes as well that's that's yeah. pretty astounding and just shows that yeah, yeah primates have been identifying snakes for millions of years as well yeah and how about failing to distinguish mimics and a right. <laughs> wrinkle on that was the people that did that research 
were in correspondence with me fairly early on, and they were sending me pictures to identify. And one of the pictures they had identified, I mean, this is not a, this is not a dump on them at all. But one of the pictures they sent me as a viper was in fact a xenodon. Oh, which, wow. Which a herpetologist will know is a fantastic viper mimic. So xenodon not only fooled the bearded capuchins, but it fooled the bearded capuchin researchers. <laughs> wow. And, which, and we know like mimics still get professional herpetologists all the time. I mean, it is, some of them are very, very convincing. They, uh, I won't name names, but I've had some very distinguished systematic herpetologists hand me a pliocircus and tell me it was a microurus. Uh, <laughs> oops. You know, and, and I personally, I mean, when I worked in Costa Rica, where, where both ROPS was common and scary, I never picked up a xenodon without restraining it first and getting a good second look. I mean, the, I mean, even as a herpetologist, the consequences of making that mistake are just so obvious that one wouldn't take the risk. Yes, absolutely. I just struck by another thought, too. We're talking about um, how ingrained it is within the uh, primate group, if you will, about, you know, the certain types of snakes are dangerous or, you know, learn to recognize this. And then we wonder why we have such a hard time educating people about about snakes. <laughs> Maybe that's part of it. Maybe there's an ingrained reluctance. Maybe it's based on something deeper than than we know. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about that, uh, Mike, a lot the last four years because I have a semi-rural existence now. And I, I live part of every week out in a county that only has 4,000 people, half of whom don't live in the county seat which itself doesn't have a single stoplight. So ah. I'm around rural people a lot, and it's caused me to rethink my attitude about their negative attitudes about snakes. Um, and I also, in a very small way, have, have my own ranch now. I have my own cattle, and I have to attend to them, and I have had to learn how to put in a T-post and, and do all sorts of stuff. And uh, it impressed me with the fact that, you know, I'm – I've been in the field with venomous snakes for, you know, almost 70 years. And I've never been bitten in the field. And I've worked in Africa with cobras. I've worked in Central and South America with Bushmasters and Terciopelos. I've worked with rattlesnakes and other venomous snakes in the U.S. I've worked with snakes in Vietnam. I've never been bitten in the field. And I've had quite a, I'm sure you guys have too, quite a few encounters in which I suddenly realized I was a lot closer to a venomous snake than I would have preferred and nothing bad happened. Right. So, so all those things kind of enforce with me the notion that, you know, they're not really that dangerous if you just pay attention. But what I think what I'm not granting a rural person is they're actually out there. Number one, not a snake expert and looking for snake. And number two, they are cognitively Concerned with something else. Yes. So they are attending to it some task that itself may be dangerous or require a lot of concentration. Perhaps they're moving a bull from one pasture to another. Perhaps they're lifting some large piece of farm machinery, you know, whatever. They're not in the same dilemma as I am walking around there in terms of venomous snakes. And so that's the first point. And the second point is, uh, rural cultures 
you know, they go deep. And so the memory of what happened to Grandma Lola is still around. And so there's a cemetery right near my ranch, and which is a very quite dramatic uh, headstone. It has places for four names, and there's only two names on it. And one is the name of the father who was killed in his early 20s when his horse fell on him. Ugh. And the other is the name of the five-year-old boy who died two, two weeks later from a rattlesnake bite. Oh, wow. This is late, late 1800s. So imagine, and, and the descendants of that family are still here in Mason County. You know? Wow. And remember, wow. Annie Venom didn't come into use until after, till when my mom was about 10 years old. So we need to remember, I think, I think a little bit of humility is, is, is warranted for those of us who are trying to convince people like snakes, because it wasn't that long ago when people in the U.S. actually died horrific deaths from snake bites. Yes. The memory of that's still around. And these, the descendants of those people are out there working in the land, maybe even ways that are biodiversity friendly. And they are contending with the fact that Atrox is everywhere, you know? <laughs> yeah. Or whatever. So, yes, I think we, you know, we try to, we, we try to show them that, you know, you don't walk around barefoot at night without a flashlight. You don't stick your hands under things. On and on and on. And and I I'm I'm into sort of one neighbor at a time. So my closest neighbor in Mason County has our snake safe space signs up on his gate. And has told me that until about ten years ago, he killed every rattlesnake he saw, and now he never kills any of them. And he tries to convince his neighbors to not do that either. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's wonderful. And, it, and if he starts explaining it to his neighbors and to his cousins, and uh, but the fire will catch. For his predicament, kind of, kind of helps the helps the cause. Absolutely. Yeah. I I took up a similar cause with my neighbors here. I'm in North Carolina, and so we don't have atrox, but we have copperheads that are everywhere, what? and people commonly mistake them for for. Uh, or sorry, I should say commonly mistake non-venomous snakes for copperheads, um, mm -hmm. or often just kill all snakes, even if it's a black racer or black rat snake. And I've been giving talks in my neighborhood, and I am now one of two actual, actually, uh, resident experts on my block that they can feel free to call and, and we'll come over and uh, help relocate or at least identify snakes for them. And I agree with you. It, it starts locally with those personal relationships like that. And we're making progress. I really think so. Yeah. And you can't be, yeah. uh, you can't be the guy bringing down the knowledge to the people. Yeah. You can't be that guy. Um, no. You, you kind of have to work with them a little bit and understand their position and make sure that they know you understand their position. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, I, I, uh, I think we want, it's time to segue a little bit and maybe move on to this, this paper. Um, sure. And maybe we'll, we'll get to the meat of the discussion, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> um, paper this paper is called heavy, bulky, or both. Oh yeah. What does large prey mean to snakes? Yeah. Wh which, um, I I read it and it took me a little while to wrap my head around some of the concepts in it, but um, uh, I and I it, it's fascinating to me and I haven't stopped thinking about it uh, all day in prep for this for this uh, this talk. But uh, Alex, why don't you why don't you 
lead us into this a, a little bit and what your thoughts are. Sure. So uh, I, I should also mention up. that you have a co-author, and I, I, I'm I'm sorry I didn't write his name down. Um, Wiseman. Yes, and this is published in the Journal of Herpetology last year. Yeah, this last fall. Last fall. It's just yeah. been out. Yeah. Okay, go ahead, Alex. Yeah. So um, this was an interesting paper that was kind of part anecdotal, part uh, review, and part kind of new data um, for basically feeding ecology or trying to come up with a theory to explain what most snakes eat and why, what might be um, the important reasons for and trade-offs for the various uh, types. And so uh, this this paper concerns mass bulk theory, which uh, basically looks at kind of two aspects of any given uh, prey type, the relative uh, uh, prey bulk and the relative prey mass. And if you can kind of uh, put those out on in three dimensional space uh, with, uh, well, however you do it with those two aspects, basically relative prey mass and relative prey bulk, and then time between feedings, you can kind of explain a lot of the variation that we see in uh, snake feedings across um, snakes generally. And so uh, Harry and, and co-authors and others, I should say, this is, this is a synthesis of ideas, not purely um, Harry and Kevin's uh, ideas, um, mm -hmm. group prey into four different types, small many small prey items, I should say, that have low bulk and low mass. And so you could think of um, mouse pups as an example there. And then kind of on the other end, and you would have to eat um, many mouse pups or eat mouse pups very frequently in order to get the same caloric intake as uh, something that would be very bulky and very um, mashous, very, and, and uh, heavy like one large rat or rabbit or another mammal. Um, and that would be, that's, that's prey type uh, two or sorry, three uh, and prey type two would be something very elongate, like uh, a snake or an eel or um, yeah. And those would be, they would have a lot of mass, but not very bulky. They're pretty easy to swallow and there's not a lot of unused space, so to speak. And then the interesting one, or or maybe the the conundrum, is yeah. is prey type four, which yeah. is very bulky and maybe not as uh, low in in mass. And so that would be um, something like a fish, which is really elongate in one direction but not the other, has these spines and is very difficult to to swallow in one take, or something like a bird, which is has all these feathers and has an actually low mass given its overall bulk because those feathers take up so much room. And I won't go on and on about this because I think Harry can articulate it a lot better than I can, but um but it's an interesting paper that weaves in kind of anecdotes about snake feeding and then the predictions that we can make about uh, everything from from gape size to 
snake evolution to to venom in snakes based on this uh this this theory um, i want to say that so yeah as we as i read it i had a trouble understanding i understand um relative ma- prey mass right mm-hmm. i can understand that but the relative prey bulk uh was yes. was, was kind of escaping me until i in the paper you use the analogy of you know a snake swallowing a pillow <laughs> yeah which then i was like okay ding i get it you know if a snake ate a pillow the relative bulk is large and the relative mass is yep. very small so that that that's exactly it was a great analogy imagine a pillow and a cinder block with the same dimensions yes yes uh and one, so, one has a lot of mass and, and the other one does not so there's there's obviously uh some differences in what you know what that means to the snake in terms of uh, uh, you know, benefit and, and calorically and so on and so forth. But, uh, and in some ways, the bottom line of this paper is if you're studying snake diets, if you have the opportunity to record observations on snake diets, if you can possibly include a measure of relative mass and a measure of relative bulk, please do. And absolutely, we, we start out early on with the example of of uh, assessing all the natural history notes on snake feeding in one issue of Herp Review. And we should, there's something like 30 or 40 records of snakes eating something in that one issue of Herp Review. And a very small fraction of them actually include anything about relative prey mass, and none of them include anything about relative prey bulk. Another example of the problem is there are papers in the literature that start out by assuming that all mammals are heavier or larger than all lizards uh. as, as snake prey. And you, we, we really need to get past this and realize it's always relative to the individual snake, you know? And so uh, often we see a snake eat something and we think, oh, wow, that's a huge meal. And it is a huge meal if you think of me eating a wood rat that weighs 30% as much as I do. You know, but I'm telling you for a rattlesnake to eat a wood rat, that's 30% of its body mass. That is, that is not even the the mode. That's not, that's not even pushing it. You know, uh, we have records of rattlesnakes eating things well over a hundred percent of their only own body mass and getting away with it. So, so that's, yeah, I, I found that really interesting that you mentioned the, the records in this relative prey mass were, uh, a scrub python that ate a panda melon with a, a relative yeah. prey mass of 1.67. So yeah. this yeah. this panda melon was nearly two-thirds as heavy as the yeah. snake. And then uh, the second winner, to Harry's point, was a Cordylus uh, cerastes, a sidewinder, that ate a, a, a whiptail that w- had a relative prey mass of 1.72, which... Yeah. Which is just crazy. It's mm. it's a relatively small sidewinder eating a relatively huge whiptail for its size. And and that sort of segues into one of the things I'm proudest about in that paper is that uh, you know, there are literally thousands of publications about snake venoms, but we actually don't have much real evidence for what venoms do for snakes in the field. Now, a presumption is that venoms let at least some snakes subdue and even digest relatively large prey. But large is, is not a very useful word, and that's another message of our paper, is that we should probably just toss that word and either talk about heavy prey or bulky prey or both. So 
one thing we did was to test a prediction from from this inference that venoms subdue and digest large prey. And we tried to do it by factoring out all the variables except relative prey mass. Now, how would you do that? Well, you take two snakes, species, a viper and a non-venomous snake that live in the same place and eat the same species of lizard. And you ask the question, does one of them tend to end up with heavier prey than the other? So think about that. We factored out everything except relative prey mass. And we, we showed two examples of this. One was sidewinders and coach whips eating western whiptail lizards. And the other one was western Pacific rattlesnakes and striped whip snakes eating scoloperus and yuta. And in both cases, so you see what we're talking about. We're talking about a viper and a non-venomous snake eating the same species of prey. And we're asking the question, do vipers tend to get more payoff? Do they take on heavier, relatively heavier prey? And the answer we got was yes. We even got a statistically significant result in that, which I think is just really exciting. Kind of astounding. Go- I, I, I'm so proud of that, you know. But yeah. another in the other direction, and I'm still working on this now, I'm working on a paper about cottonmouths in the Texas Hill Country. Cottonmouths, boy, that is that has got to be one of the coolest snakes in the world. I mean, I, I just love cottonmouths. I just adore cottonmouths. And there's just so many things about them that are cool, you know. But one of the things they do, I think they're basically tied with indigo snakes for highest percentage of turtles in the diet. Ah, yeah. Wow. Most snakes don't eat turtles, but Drymarcon do and cottonmouths do. And I've got a record right now, and I found one more in the literature of cottonmouths eating juvenile softshell turtles. Wow. So think about this. I mean, a softshell turtle is like the epitome of bulky prey. Yeah. It's, it's all, if anything, it's worse than a fish. It's worse than a fish like a shad. Think about a softshell turtle. It's almost a circular disc that's thickness is like what, 10%? of its diameter, yeah. 25% of its diameter. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. So what that says is to swallow that softshell turtle, you have to have a gape that'll take in, say, three inches wide. And once you do that, what did you get for your trouble? Imagine the mass of a three-inch diameter softshell turtle versus a three-inch diameter rat. Yes. That's what we're talking about, you know. And so the thing that intrigues me is that cotton mouths eat them. <laughs> I mean. And cottonmouths eat big prey too. Sure. There are records of cottonmouths swallowing, you know, like juvenile egrets and American alligators and muskrats. I mean, cottonmouths are vipers. They they occasionally eat humongous prey items in terms of relative prey mass. And yet they don't pass up a, a crazy juvenile softshell turtle. I, I think that that's their job. Like basically they eat everything yes. <laughs> within reason. What a cool snake, huh? Yeah. They are very fascinating. And it brings me to kind of, I guess it's kind of a, a side question um, or it, a tangential topic to this paper. But um, how do you think that works on an individual level, Harry? Do you like, how much do you think that that is an individual decision of the snake that they they are making some calculations that we I probably won't get food later, so I might as well try for this relatively um, this difficult to swallow turtle that won't give me very much prey. Or how much do you think it is um, based on natural selection or something kind of larger that 
cottonmouths just generally eat everything because they have the the um, gate to be able to versus uh, other snakes that are that are just uh, limited by gape and and seemingly much more picky about what they will eat. How much do you think it is? Yeah. Based on natural selection versus individual preference, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's one of the, one of the great unanswered questions of snake biology. I mean, when I was a grad student uh, 50 years ago, almost 50 <laughs> years ago, um, I think that mo- mo- the few of us that studied snakes back then probably presume that they are largely hardwired. And certainly right. there's, there's very convincing evidence that they're hard that some snakes are very hardwired for certain things. Like, you know, this is my advisor, Gordon Burkhart's PhD work, where he showed that you can take queen snakes, which are specialists on freshly shed crayfish, not just crayfish, freshly shed crayfish. And Gordon Burkhart showed in his dissertation work that you can take a litter of new newborn queen snakes, no previous exposure to any kind of prey. You make these water washes of goldfish, cricket, earthworm, mouse, crayfish, and freshly ectized crayfish, and then you throw in a control like distilled water. Then you offer these baby, no prior experience, baby queen snakes, each of these extracts, and the response to all of them but one is one or two tongue flicks and no further interest. And when you offer them the Q-tip dipped in freshly shed crayfish water, little queen snake tongue flicks once and tries to swallow the Q-tip. Uh-huh. Wow. So wow. on the one hand, yes, there are clearly, you know, innate responses involved in the feeding biology of snakes. And I think when I was a grad student, we thought, we presumed that snakes were not very smart. I mean, they have demonstrably small brains compared to mammals and so forth. Yeah. But now we know there's all this crazy stuff going on. You know, uh, I think I may have been the first one to see it, but Rulon Clark and, and one of his PhD students studying squirrels, they, they sh- we, we now know that rattlesnakes of several species modify their ambush environment to enhance the likelihood of sometime down the line successfully succeeding in striking a prey item. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. I mean, when I saw it myself in the field the first time with a black tail rattlesnake, I didn't think anybody, I turned to David Hardy next to me and said, what did you just see? Because I didn't, <laughs> and I thought no one would believe me. But we saw this big black tail rattlesnake tongue flicking this, what turned out to be a chipmunk trail for 13 minutes, this little two square yard, two square needle area. And then, Caught up in an ambush posture perpendicular to the trail, and then two minutes later, reach out with a male-male combat posture and bend a dead fern out of the way that would have been his prospective strike zone. I mean, it's it. I think it's not parsimonious to to attribute that to genes or to some innate response. It's more parsimonious to attribute it to some kind of cognitive function you know yeah it's and, certainly uh, aware of it's not just its environment but where it is in its environment absolutely absolutely and some notion of an advantage downstream because we know that pit viper might have sat there for days before it successfully ambushed a squirrel or not yeah it's interesting but, and uh, i'm not going to go into the details but i i, I know 
in my heart of hearts that animal, uh, sight hunter snakes like racers, they carry a map of their territory around it. They know where they're at. They, sure. they know where their escape routes are. They know all that yep. stuff. They're, they're not just dumb animals blundering around a field. They are, uh, they are aware of where they're at. And, uh, yep. I think that's amazing too. Um, it is. Yeah, it is. I really think that the whole, you know, we're, we're sort of at a period right now where we're going to basically start over with reptile behavior. <laughs> you know, we had these paradigms, these notions, you know, like, well, iguanians have territories and whiptails and alligator lizards don't. And, you know, and I think we're going to find out that all of it's so much more complicated than we imagined. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I uh, supervised an undergrad at UC Santa Cruz who had the simple task of marking out the territories of all the scoloporous lizards that she found in this little place on campus and found exactly that, that it's a lot more common or it's a lot more complicated than one male guarding many females. And as, as the typical uh, understanding of territoriality goes and exactly that it, it, the, the notion needs a bit of a rewrite, it seems. Yeah. Well, I, I predict, you know, the book that will get it written 10 or 15 years from now about reptile behavior will be very different from the ones that were written when I was a grad student. Very, very different. When I, I want to go back thing. to this soft shell uh, uh, predation thing. And I'm wondering, what, did the, the cottonmouth bring its venom apparatus into play with this uh, soft shell turtle? Uh, and the reason I, I wonder about that is because also in the paper you talk about uh, 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 mambas eating termites. Obviously, no no venom comes into play there. And uh, obviously, copperheads eat uh, cicadas, and they're not envenomating cicadas. So uh, it made me wonder about that with the, with the cottonmouth as well, because obviously the, these are uh, animals that are taking advantage of other prey items. They're not kind of locked into, oh, I only eat this. I can also right. I can also eat many other things. Right. So my impression and all the turtle examples I know of are are mainly documented by photographs. So I don't actually have really prey mass on any of them. I can just guesstimate that it's very small, you know. But my impression is the cottonmouths are just swallowing baby turtles. Strip that the little turtles are just struggling and being swallowed just as would dry Marcon, just as would an indigo snake with a turtle, you know? Yes. Um, I want to, I want to bring this back to the very beginning when you're talking about um, the fact that many people witness uh, predation events and that includes me, but you can't weigh an animal, a snake before a predation event, but you might be able to, you know, get a, a, a scale and put it in a bag and weigh it afterwards. Could you work out you know, a relative uh, rough idea of what the, what the prey item, you know, his mass or its weight was from, from that measurement. Could you take, say, well, the, you know, the common giant kangaroo rat, the average weight for an adult is X, X grams. So could you work, work backwards from that? Is that possible? Yeah, you could, you could, depending on the circumstances, you, you'd want to be a little careful about it because on the one hand, you know, most mammals have a, a, a fairly uh, constant adult body size. And so uh, 
and 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 so mammals are usually either like neonates and juveniles in the nest, or they're out there and independent. And one thing that's cool about mammalogists is that for going back maybe a century, they've been for whatever reason I'm not clear why this is, but they were putting weights on their tags of their museum specimens ah, for certain hmm. types of work. So if you if you want to generate you know a, a regression relationship between snout vent length and body mass for any North American mammal, you can do it easily. There's there's thousands of specimens out there to work with that you can just use the museum tags. And then, you know, if you know a wood rat was about, let's say, 120 millimeters from snout to rump, you could you could estimate that. And you you might even could estimate it by looking at the bulge in a snake, you know. Herpetologists haven't been near as good at carrying around Pasola scales and weighing stuff, although I, I have done that. So there are several thousand museum specimens I've collected over my lifetime on on the tag of which is given the fresh snout vent, tail length, and mass of that animal that somebody can use that someday, you know. We haven't we talk about that in the paper a little bit because uh, there's so much wonderful emphasis now on community science that we wondered if we could enlist community scientists, you know, citizen scientists in some people's jargon, to uh, gather more data on relative prey mass and maybe relative prey bulk. And we were discouraged from from recommending that by by people who work in community science because, uh, first of all, there's the legality of so much as touching a herp Ah. in most places. I mean, the places I've worked, I couldn't pick up a roadkill rattlesnake without a permit you know sure, I, right. I could have killed it with a gun or a stick but i couldn't pick up a roadkill for science and certainly that's going to be true of a lay person and then there's the issue of safety if it's a venomous species you know so we were we were discouraged in the course of writing that paper from recommending that community scientists get involved with this and we give one example of what you sort of described mike was that uh Late in the writing of that paper, I was sent a picture from La Selva, Costa Rica, where I worked for many years, of an adult terciopelo that had an obvious food mass. And uh, the person who took the picture thought the praeta might be a tropical cottontail because a tropical cottontail had been seen in that immediate vicinity hmm. right before the snake was seen with its food bulge. So the chief naturalist there at La Selva went back looked at the photograph, saw that there was a large round rock in the photograph and went back and measured the rock (laughs) and used the measurement of the rock, which is 18 centimeters, to estimate the total length of the Bothrop's asper. Okay, and so we have that as a figure in our paper because you could could then make some assumptions. It's, It's not a wildly irrelevant assumption to think that the externally visible mass was about the length of whatever that snake ate. And so you could estimate that length. And then if you wanted to believe that it was a cottontail, you could just go to museum records and say, if I had a cottontail that was uh, 20 centimeters snout to rump, how much would it weigh? And then you could go to data that lots of us have on both Rob's Asper and go, well, if I had a 1.8 meter Bothrop's Asper, about how much would she weigh? If she, if it was that big, it would be a she. And uh, you could, I would call it a guesstimate, but it's not meaningless. Yeah, it's, right. it's better. It's better than nothing. Right. 
Right. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's a pretty, I, I think a lot of our listeners are probably field herpers who are out finding snakes for fun in their in their spare time. And I think it's an important message to say that the weights and relative lengths of any prey that they find is is really important to note and uh, and and worthwhile carrying that that as you say that that tool a pasola scale in your bag which probably costs less than the binoculars you're already carrying around absolutely absolutely yeah i yeah. i bring my luggage scale with me oh yeah which cool. works just as well cool, but, cool. Uh, right yeah well, I thought that was interesting. Um, I, you know, uh, we talk about predation events, and I think that we always talk about what that would be like in human terms. You know, like if you ate a soft shell, you know, eating a soft shell turtle is like putting a frisbee in your mouth or whatever, or, or mm-hmm. you know, yes. the equivalent of a hot dog that's you know uh, some enormous length. Um, but I, th- I think. One of the things that stuck out in my mind for a, a predation event that I had a few years ago out in uh, out in the uh, California desert, Carrizo Plain, is a, a rattlesnake ate a giant kangaroo rat, and we came across yeah. across the, the whole swallowing business. And then um, Emily Taylor and Bob Hansen happened to be out there, and so we all kind of watched this thing. And then Emily kind of gave me, uh, I want to say, like a tutorial about this this event because this giant rat she had figured maybe you know x number of calories you know say 500 calories for this uh rat uh yeah. that the snake was eating and perhaps that's the only meal and somehow this animal manages or could manage to function in for an entire season on that one what we would consider a very small amount of calories and it just sort of it's a striking contrast between endotherms and ectotherms you know and amount, what what you can do with a calorie, uh, what we do with calories, and what a, what a snake can do with a calorie, um, or a humming, or a humming, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, it kind of put it in perspective for me, and I I think a lot more in terms of calories, calories spent in search of other calories, and that sort of thing too. And and so I wonder too yeah. when we talk about relative uh, prey mass. Uh, do calories fit it? How do calories fit into that? Do, do is that too find a point to think of it in terms of calories? No, no, it's not at all. And, you know, in a more sophisticated analysis, it's, it's calories and nutrients that you'd really be measuring. So, so, so mass is a, is a proxy for something much more complicated. And um, people have, including Kevin Wiseman and I and our collaborators, we published a paper on the feeding ecology of California king snakes. And, um, in that paper, we estimated caloric value of several major prey types in California king snakes and adjusted our take on what California king snakes were doing in terms of not just grams of food, but nutritional value beyond grams, you know. A really interesting aspect of that study was that, uh, you know, king snakes are famously immune to the venom of, of vipers. And so he's going to bring this up. Yeah, you might know, think that vipers are a really important prey item for king snakes, but they're not actually in terms of frequency. I mean, we found that we had over 400 natural prey items for California king snakes. Uh, we had so much information that we could analyze geographic variation in diet and age-related variation in diet, seasonal variation in diet, stuff like that. And what we found was that the California king snakes are only about 7% of the diet overall. 
So you'd go, well, why bother to be adapted for something that's only 7% by frequency of your diet? Because we could look at relative prey mass and we could look at the payoff per prey item. We showed that among all the things California king snakes eat, a snake is the most valuable prey item in terms of payoff per item. And a rattlesnake, even among snakes, a rattlesnake is the most valuable prey item that California king snake can eat in terms of the cost of searching for and finding and subduing an individual prey. And then we showed that, yes, they also eat birds and mammals, but those are very seasonal in their diet. And snakes are like the staple across the active season for California king snakes. So now all of a sudden, the ability to eat just one rattlesnake in July is huge. Is huge. And so then you can go, oh, okay, well, then it makes a lot more sense that they may have adaptations for subduing this what at first glance seems like a relatively trivial part of their diet. Well, it also makes me wonder why more snakes don't eat more snakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that's a good question. And I think it's, you know, it's a matter of resource partitioning and having specializations that let you handle other kinds of prey. So, California king snakes are not well designed at all for eating adult rodents and for eating birds. They do eat birds and rodents, but mostly nestlings. And so, in fact, uh, another thing we showed is that when California king snakes eat nestling mammals and birds, they almost never get over about 20% relative prey mm. mass an individual item. Whereas when they eat snakes, they get up to about 100% of relative prey mass. So, yes, their diet includes nestling birds and mammals. And at certain times of the year, it's very much worth their while even to search for nestling birds and mammals if they're common at that time of the year, you know. This kind of reminds me too of um, you know, I'm talking with uh, Michael Dreslick, who has done Massasauga research uh, here in my home state of Illinois, but the dietary yeah. habits of neonate Massasaugas in Illinois, uh, at least in Illinois, the neonate Massasaugas are eating uh, juvenile garter snakes. Uh, Is that right? know, uh -huh. uh, which now uh -huh. in this context makes a lot of sense because that's a, uh, something it, it is readily available in that environment. You can, there's plenty of gutter snakes in the same habitat and, uh, uh, why not? I mean, it, given, uh, the, the relative, uh, prey mass of a, of a garter snake, much higher than, uh, you know, uh, pup mice or whatever. That's exactly right. In fact, for a baby Massasauga's gape. The most valuable prey item it can eat would be another snake. Yeah. So that's a very interesting thing. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking about this in terms of gape limiting is, uh, was interesting and surprising for me. I don't know if other, uh, herpers or herpetologists would find it surprising to describe snakes as gape limited, but, uh, this paper really, really opened my eyes to that idea that, um, I, when I think of a snake, I think of their, the, the fact that their lower jaw is not connected. And so that it can open to many times wider than, uh, than their head. And so they can swallow these, uh, relatively bulky, uh, prey items, uh, but that's just not true for all snakes, and and so that that requires somewhat of a specialization on less bulky prey items. And you bring up numerous examples of that, um, especially in the genus Slampropeltis. And exactly. I found that yeah, that was that was very interesting. Yep, yep. 
Yep. Well, we had a lot of fun writing that paper, and if anybody wants a copy, you can just you can just uh, look up my email address at UT Austin and send me an email, and I'll send you a PDF of the paper. It's also open access, so uh, anyone can download it from the Society for Study of Amphibians and Reptiles Journal of Herpetology website. Thank you for awesome. that. Yeah, awesome. It sounds like that's a good time to segue to uh, something else you you uh, uh, dropped on us, so to speak, uh, and that is uh, an essay that you wrote for a, a a book that's coming out, a collection of essays, and uh, I'll have the title of it here. It's called. Uh, it's coming out in twenty twenty four, and the title is "The Heart of the Wild," um, and uh, subtitle is what. Have it here. Maybe you can essays on nature, conservation, and the human future. That's it. Yep. Yeah. It looks like Harry wrote the conclusion called "A Part, A Part, or A Part." Ought nature lovers ever wear fur? Yeah. Um, yes, and this is uh, the editors are uh, and contributors are uh, Ben Mintier, who I, I I'm not too familiar with, and and Jonathan Losos, who I look at as the lizard guy. Um, yep. And uh, so you wrote this essay, and we uh, got to take a look at it and read it. And uh, uh, once again, uh, you left me with uh, many things to think about in terms of what, what you were writing about here. And uh, maybe you want to touch base on that a little bit. Yeah, so this this grew especially out of my last four years of uh, having gone, as I say, a bit feral. So I live uh, several days of every week now, and for a period I lived several months in a row in a 12 by 20 foot cabin uh, on a small ranch about two hour drive west of Austin, the hill country uh, where my neighbors and I are all interested in restoring things like prairie dogs and native grasses and um, using ranching practices that encourage biodiversity. So example, we, some of us have only longhorns on our property and we don't worm our cattle with ivermectin, which means we don't kill our dung beetles. Um, but maybe the most controversial thing that we've done is we've killed a lot of raccoons. And we did that because of the, the strongly supported suspicion that the local extinction of certain birds and herps was a result of an incredible overabundance of raccoons. So you might wonder why that would be. And the reasons are twofold. One is that by the mid 20th century, we had lost all our apex predators from Texas. The last jaguar kill in Texas was, quote, unquote, fat as butter with a raccoon in its stomach. Huh. Uh, the other thing that happened is my neighbors who are my age, when they were teenagers and college students, paid for their social life by trapping raccoons. So they would get $35 a raccoon pelt. Good golly. Single raccoon, $35. This is back in the 70s. And so they were buying their their cases of Coors beer and, you know, paying for their trips <laughs> the Willie Nelson concerts or whatever with, with money from killing raccoons and the anti fur movement of the late seventies and thereafter pretty much squashed the fur trade. And so they stopped doing that. And it's a, it's a thing sort of like the Brown tree snake in Guam. It takes a while for a, a predator like that to hit the sort of exponential curve part of its population growth and start having a visible impact. And the whole scene was complicated by the arrival of fire ants in Texas decades ago, which clearly had an effect on things like box turtles and collared lizards and so forth. So 
But the thing is, the, the, the fire ants stopped being a problem by about the millennium. And yet, these things didn't come back. So the first two years I was on my ranch, I never heard of Bob White quail. I never saw a Woodhouse's toad. Never saw a Texas horn lizard. And David Hillis, who has a bigger ranch, he's a herpetologist just two miles down the road from me. He didn't see him either, and he's been there for 25 years. But David is the one who thought, we, we all noticed it. We all deer hunt on his property, and we noticed that raccoons were just astonishingly common. They were the commonest roadkill around here. We'd be sitting in a deer stand, and three raccoons would walk by your feet Well, you know, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Wow. And so it was just really obvious that raccoons were super abundant. So there's a trap you can buy that's almost raccoon specific. Basically, the predator has to stick its forepaw down into a vase-like thing to reach the bait, which is pumpkin seeds. And when it does, a noose grabs its wrist and it's caught. So uh, we, a, a bunch of people in this area, several people, landowners this area, embarked on a, a campaign to lower raccoon numbers. And by the third year, Texas horn lizards were back. Ah. Wood has his toads were abundant and we hadn't seen them. Now I sometimes hear three bobwhite quails calling from three different directions at once while sitting in front of my cabin. So wow. it's a it's a really interesting dilemma because who can not like a raccoon? Yeah. You know. <laughs> and it's not their fault. It's not their fault. No. As individuals. So it's I mean I, I don't like doing it. I I not only don't enjoy it, I, I actively don't like doing it. But I think to just take the raccoon's point of view and all that is to neglect all those woodhouses, toads, and Texas yeah. horn lizards, bobwhite quail, who also have rich inner lives and do cool things and surely deserve to be considered as well. So it's 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 an interesting conservation dilemma. Well, you find yourself uh, in the position of interceding for other wildlife. Yes. That's right. And of course it's a popular claim that we should just let nature take its course and who are we to play gods and so forth and uh that's just not me. I I I I can't act like that. I don't I I think moral responsibility is not about just standing by the sidelines and letting whatever's going to happen, happen. So I know you had a, not everyone would agree with that, but that's my, my position. You had a really powerful quote um, in this essay that, that, that spoke to me on this subject that saying that no other species has left only footprints and taken only photos. And yes. I think, I think that it is relevant to to what we're talking about here that not only is it your personal philosophy that um that that you won't just stand idly by but um that is a wholly human centric idea to kind of let nature take its course and to do nothing and stand back i think we know yeah. from from human history and from anthropology that humans have been interacting with their environment have been have been players in their own ecological drama for millennia since humans have existed right. and or, and other species are too. Yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. And you know, uh, you'll often hear 
uh, kind of throwaway comments by some environmentalists that that no other species has caused the extinction of another species, or that other species don't don't so radically. I mean, come on, go go to Africa and look what elephants do to a savanna habitat. Uh, uh, you can. You, you, if you exclude elephants from a chunk of savanna, you will, in a few decades, have a completely different ecosystem. Yes. You know, uh, if you want to go back hundreds of millions of years and look at what the origins of cyanobacteria did to the oxygen of the atmosphere of this planet, it's, <laughs> it's incredible. You know, so so I think we need we need to remember we've always been part of nature, and that's what my ta- talk is about. It comes from a Robertson. My title's about it. it comes from a Robertson Jefferson's poem. Jefferson poem in which he talks about be a part, a part of, not apart from. And I think the paradox is that we we bemoan the fact that we're apart from nature, all the while acting as if we want to be apart from nature. And I, I think part of part of saving nature in the future is kind of coming to grips with this problem. That's what my essay is about. Yeah, I took away the uh, the term uh, human exceptionalism. Yeah, yeah. Where you know we think we are. We are, I think we are superior to the rest of the living world and therefore are apart from it. But that's, that's really not true, especially when we need more than ever to, to, to intercede. Um, interceding yes. is our, our, our role, whether we like yes. it or not. I believe it is too. And I appreciate your, the honesty with interceding as well, that like, that, as you say with the raccoons, it doesn't always feel good. It doesn't, no. it isn't, um, it it isn't nice all the time and that yeah your conscience may feel as clean as a bug splattered windshield <laughs> yeah. and uh i i agree with that as as a hunter myself it uh it it doesn't always fe- it doesn't feel good to kill another thing um but but it you can justify it in in other ways it does feel good to be more part of nature, though. I, I started deer hunting in 2009. Uh, I just had a cheeseburger for dinner tonight that was made from the ground meat of a deer I killed in December. And so for dinner tonight, I ate tissue that grew out of eating the acorns under the live oak trees on the property I live on. You know? Right. And, uh, I. I I like thinking of myself as part of nature like that. Yeah, you're not necessarily living at the land. You're 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 part of the landscape. Um, you're part of yeah, it. and I think we are inevitably anyway. But we have all these things between us and and realizing that you know, so we we can go in a grocery store and buy chicken thighs and and not recognize them as part of a bird. You know, we can we can go in the bathroom and take care of our, our waste from our own metabolism and not realize that it has to go somewhere. It's like it, it magically disappears, but of course it doesn't. We've just, right. we've just put this sewage treatment process between us and the rest of nature, you know? And I, I, I think we would be moving in the right direction by paying more attention to the fact that we're always part of nature. Agreed. My Agreed. dog came in. Oh, okay. <laughs> Well, I I don't have anything else you need to add to this, Alex. Um, no, no, I I as always really appreciate your perspective, Harry, and uh, and have thoroughly enjoyed our our conversation as much as it has wandered. So this has been really a pleasure. 
Great talking to you guys. When do, when does this go up? Um, let's see. It is now um, uh, January 30th. So uh, I'm going to say uh, probably mid-February. I, I'm leaving for Peru in, next week. And when I get back, I'll have it, have it out. So um, I'm going to say third week of February, probably, conservatively. You'll let me know, I hope? Yes, I will. Yes, I will. I'll okay. let you know. And uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. This has been a, a an honor and a pleasure to ha- have you on the show. And, of course, having you on the show with Alex is just icing on the cake for me. I always enjoy having Alex come in. And we've, me as- we've done some interesting – we had some interesting discussions with uh, with uh, herpetologists all over the place. It's been a lot of fun. So, Yeah. Great for me to see Alex again, too. <laughs> well, I've really enjoyed chatting with both of you. So a pleasure yeah. all around. All right. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Take care, you guys. Alex will Bye-bye. be in touch about tortoise genetics. Sounds great. Anytime. Awesome. awesome. Hey there, it's me again. You know, I've had a month longer than the rest of you to process this conversation with Harry and Alex, and I'm still thinking about the subjects we covered uh, and the follow-up questions that I wish I had thought to bring up, uh, such as we talked about fang modifications in spitting cobras, uh, but are there also modifications that allow them to accurately track and target the eyes of predators? I mean, is that a special adaptation? Or, you know, when it comes to eating very large meals, I wish I had thought to bring up um, more about, you know, the risk and reward factor. Uh, We've all seen examples of snakes that bit off more than they could chew, so to speak, and, you know, it cost them their lives. Uh, So if you can keep down that huge meal without it killing you, the payoff is huge. I also want to touch on the raccoon mitigation issue. Uh, You may remember that this was a topic of discussion uh, back in episode 87 last fall. And much like Harry and his fellow ranchers, uh, the crew conserving turtles up in Iowa also saw a bounce back in wildlife uh, soon after initiating uh, sustained raccoon trapping. Uh, Anecdotal, yes, but nevertheless. Uh, And since I'm a firm believer in our role as an intercessor, uh, I'm now interested in learning more about, you know, other people's experiences in this area, uh, be it with raccoons or um, maybe some other out-of-balance predators. But that's the magic of talking to deep thinkers. Uh, if you're open to it, you may become one yourself. So, so thank you, Harry, for bringing your insights and experiences and passion to the microphone. And, uh, of course, I look forward to your next book. And as always, thank you, Alex, and I hope to talk to you again soon. And thanks for listening, everyone. That's it for episode 94. Thanks once again to Drs. Harry Green and Alex Crone for talking with me. Uh, I feel like our time together just flew by. It was a lot of fun. And once again, I want to thank Clint Guadiana for his Patreon contribution and Dave Weber for yet another one-time donation. Much appreciated. And as always, I want to say thanks to all of the So Much Pingle patrons who keep the show rolling on into the future. And if you would like to kick in a few bucks to help out, it's easy to do and costs about as much as a cup of delicious coffee. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is all one word. You can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more details on that. 
Don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so muchpingle.com. And you can also join the So Much Pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. I say it every time, but I do like hearing from folks. I like to hear your thoughts and opinions, your guest suggestions, whatever you got. You can email me at so muchpingle at gmail.com. And of course, so much pingle is all one word. Please also note that I am on Instagram and Mastodon and Blue Sky now, all under the So Much Pingle handle. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves. And don't forget to hurt better.